Thanks everyone for just saying hello to one another and greeting one another. Hello to everyone who's watching online. Um, we, we miss you. We hope you're well, we're praying for you. Those, especially those who are sick or um, in need of healing, we're praying for you. So we've been doing a series called Roots and uh, we're, we've been launching kind of from this place, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. And we're talking about that when we turned last week, we had all the kids in here. So we had some kind of fun analogies with the kids about when, when we um, turn to Jesus, believe in him, when we repent and turn from what we're doing and we turn back to following Jesus. So hold on here. This cord is sticking out. Can you guys see that? Is it bugging you? No? Okay. I feel this thing. <laughs> so um, we've been in this Ephesians 3 passage. If we could put it up on the screen. This is the prayer. Where I hope we're all praying for one another these days. So if, will you pray it with me? Um, pray it out loud with me. Okay, you ready? I pray that from Christ's glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. In the next verse, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. Amen. Such a great passage. I think when I'm praying for someone and I don't know how to pray for them, I don't know, I'm interceding for someone and I'm like, Lord, what do they need? I don't know. Pray this, pray that Ephesians 3 passage over their lives or over their life. What happens when we have those deep roots in the love of Christ is we are strong. We have power to understand the width, length, height, and depth of God's love. We experience, it's not just an understanding, it's not just head knowledge, but we actually experience Christ's love. We're made complete with the fullness of life, and we have power, power to change, and power to grow, and power to heal, and preach the good news to everyone around us. So last week, we talked about what you do to get your roots deep. You begin to turn, believe, trust, and follow. There's a little bit of a paradox here, because on one hand, we're talking about roots, right? That feels kind of like you're stuck with these roots, but you're not stuck. It's just making you stable in God's love and your identity in Christ. But then there was that follow where you go after and you follow and you journey and you walk and you rest and you work and you go with God. God has stuff he wants you to do, experiences he wants you to have. Following Jesus is not like playing Xbox on your couch. When you sit on your couch and you sit back and let's say you're doing Minecraft and you're just building a city and you've got herds and you've got cattle and you've got resources and all this stuff and you're building this world in Minecraft, all from your couch with your thumbs. No, the kingdom of heaven isn't like that. It's tangible. It's earthy. It's real. It happens 
in hospitals and in pharmacies and grocery stores and playgrounds and schoolyards and I don't know, wherever you go. You go with Jesus to these places and that's where the kingdom of, it's a movement. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's handiwork created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a mission for us. God has stuff for us to do and go and see and experience. And this following Jesus is worship. This is what worship is. Worship is way bigger than singing songs and doing communion and coming in here on Sunday. I want to speak today about living a life of worship. But when I say that worship, what images come to mind? What do you think of? Do you think of, um, oh, do you think of putting on fancy robes and performing certain rituals? Do you think about bowing before images of silver and gold? Do you think about going to a loud rock concert and just yelling, Jesus, you know, all the time? <laughs> is that what worship is? Is it giving your money? Is it removing your shoes and bowing humbly different times of day? What is worship? What does worship mean to you? What comes to mind? Paul describes worship in Romans 12, but before we go there, what he says in Romans 12, in Romans 1 through 11, there's lots of chapters and lots of words, and essentially, he reminds us the good news of the gospel. He reminds us you're saved from the power of sin. You're adopted into God's family. We're children of God. We get to live by grace and favor instead of following rules of the law. There's power of the Holy Spirit to help us. There's promises in difficult times. God's promises, he's faithful and true to his promises. And there's the assurance of never being separated from the love of God. So that's Romans 1 through 11 in a nutshell for you. <laughs> and then in light of all this, because of all this, this is what God, God says, or Paul says to the believers. He says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you because of all he has done for you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's worship. Worship might include bowing, giving, singing, and shouting, meditating, and waiting before the Lord, but worship is way bigger than that. It's presenting our own bodies to God. This physical, natural body, actually giving it to God in worship. It's allowing God to transform the way we think and allowing us to become new people. It's learning God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's following Jesus. Like Brian said earlier, it doesn't mean life is easy and there aren't more difficult times to come. In fact, sometimes it gets harder, he mentioned. No, but 
in those times, we get to be like those trees planted by living streams of water, rooted and grounded in love, and it's so worth it. Remember when you were 16 and you were excited to get your driver's license? Does anybody remember that? I was very excited to learn to drive. I'm thinking of my own kids who are drivers now. They were very ready. So you start out in the parking lots, right? (laughs) On Sunday night when no one's at school, you go to the school parking lots and help your kids drive around in the parking lot. Then they go to driver's ed, and then they log hours at school, learning how to drive. And then we, as parents, pay insurance. We pay money to get them on our insurance so that it's okay for them to be out there. And then after five times, you pass your driver's license, right? (laughs) Hope Our test, hopefully it didn't take you five times, but it, it does happen sometimes. And then your parents give you access to beautiful cars, right? Like like we gave our kids like a 1998 Nissan Altima named Rico. (laughs) That thing, it's a miracle. It keeps running. It's like, how many years older? It's like eight years older than my son, and he's still driving it. (laughs) Or you get a minivan with doors that don't work called Doug. Does anybody else name your cars? Are we the only crazy family that name you? Rico and Doug are sitting in our parking, in our driveway right now. Actually, people borrow Doug all the time. That minivan is a gift to our community. (laughs) Um, But now's your chance. You're like, you've turned 16. You believe you can do this. You're ready to get on the road. You're off to a new start, but you don't. You leave the car. You leave Doug and Rico parked in the driveway. What? You're missing out on a whole new life, a whole new world, all sorts of things to go see and do. If you think worship is just coming here to church on Sunday or any church on a Sunday, giving, bowing, singing, learning, scripture, telling stories, logging some hours, checking off a few requirements, then you're missing out on a lot of stuff. And your car is parked in the driveway. You got to get in the car and get going with Jesus. Following Jesus means living a life of worship. It's a journey. It's a relationship. And Jesus doesn't ask you to worship him because he's an egomaniac and he needs us to like build, boost his ego. No, he doesn't have codependency problems. (laughs) That's not the heart behind Jesus asking us to worship. Jesus asks us to worship and to follow him because it's in a life of following Jesus and worshiping him that he gets to speak to us, touch us, It's in that place that he gets to transform our thinking, change our understanding and our experience. That's why Jesus wants us to worship because it's in worship that we can be transformed. And we're his kids. He wants to give us good gifts. He wants to hold us and heal us and help us grow and mature and have a life on the road of adventure. And he wants to be with us when life gets rough. So I'm going to tell a story, the story of Abraham and Sarai. 
And, I, and this story is going to illustrate a life of worship. And this story, I'm not going to read it because it's 13 chapters, Genesis 12 to 25. That's a lot to cover, so we're not going to read it. I'm just going to go through and give you bullet points. This big picture, big picture um, perspective of Abraham's life. It starts out, it's 17 stories, and it's this ancient faith story. Who, who remembers? Anybody in children's church or primary school or whatever church tradition you came from, did you ever sing, Father Abraham had many sons, right? Lots of faith traditions sing that song. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. The Islamic tradition, yeah, so let's all praise the Lord. Somebody's ready to keep singing already. <laughs> So let's all praise the Lord. And then there's action and movement. But the Islamic tradition considers Abraham the father of faith. The Jewish tradition does. And our Christian tradition. I mean, this is an ancient story about following God. And it's a hard story. A lot of these stories that I'm just going to touch on briefly, I'm not going to get into them. They're complex. It's nice when you know the history and the context of when they were told and I encourage you to do that. And I encourage you to read those chapters. And then when you have questions, because you will have questions, because they are difficult stories, make sure you ask someone in the faith who has discipled you or someone you, you trust and somebody who can mentor you. But I'm going to just do some bullet points in, of his story. I want to say this before I start. This is Eugene Peterson. I've been reading a lot of, of his books lately, so I'm sorry I quote him so much, but they're just good. They're good books. So this is what he says about Abraham. Abraham did not become our exemplar of faith, our father of faith, by having it explained to him, but by engaging in a lifetime of travel. Life on the road daily leaving something of himself behind, self-sovereignty, sovereignty, and entering into something new, God's sovereignty. This is the, 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 the father of our faith. This is an example that we can watch. God is our father now, right? God is our father. Dave Elsog spoke about that a couple weeks ago, but we have this example of faith who didn't figure it out because someone stood up here and explained it to him. He figured it out because he got in the car and he got going on a journey with God. And his journey had a lot of ups and a lot of downs. He made some amazing leaps of faith and he had some amazing, amazing failures of faith. Just like us, right? So when Abraham is, Abraham is 75 years old and Sarai is 66 years old, God comes to them and speaks to them. They live in this land called Ur. And Ur is where they worship the sun and the moon gods and they climb up these big ziggurats. Do you know what a ziggurat is? It's like a pyramid. It was an ancient pyramid in Ur. And they, would, they were part of the culture there that worshiped the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all these other gods. That was the land that Abraham came from, worshiping all these gods and doing all this stuff to get curry favor, right? And for the harvest and all that kind of stuff. And there were lots of different gods and different ways that you would worship. And Jehovah, this one God comes and says, I'm Jehovah. I'm coming to you 
and I want you to follow me. We don't know exactly what this looked like, but we know the promise that God made to him. God comes to Abram and says this, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise that this God Jehovah comes to Abram and gives him. Abram's told, leave this place, Ur, and go on this journey with me. God says, come on this journey with me. And if you do it, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless a bunch of other people too. This is going to be a road of blessing. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be blessing. So Abram gets up and does what God says. He brings his wife, he brings his nephew Lot, he brings his household, everyone who works for him, all his herds, his tents, everything. It's like RV living with like a ton of people. They get on the road and go. The first place they stop is Shechem. What do they do in Shechem? And this is gonna be a pattern that you're gonna see over and over again. Abraham builds an altar not a giant ziggurat, not a giant pyramid, but just an altar. And he puts a sacrifice on the altar. An altar means it's a place where you're meeting with God. You're offering something to God. You're showing humility and acknowledging your dependency on God and your sin. You're remembering who God is, that God is God and we're just human. We need God. Okay, they don't stop there. They get up and they go to a place called Bethel. And what do they do there? They build another altar. And then you'll see this phrase over and over again in, Genesis, in this phrase, there he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. So everywhere Abram goes on his journey, he builds an altar and calls on the name of the Lord. This is what Peterson says about sacrifice. Sacrifice is a readiness to interrupt whatever we are doing and build an altar, to bind whatever we happen to be carrying with us at the moment, place it on the altar, and see what God wills to do with it. Wow. So you're on this journey with God. You're going on this adventure with God of life, and you stop at different points and you look at God and you say, oh, this is what I'm carrying. I give it to you, God. What do you want to do with it? And you continue on your journey. And that's what Abram does. They get to another spot. They go to Egypt. And Abram makes a bunch of, and Sarah make a bunch of bad mistakes there. They lie. They end up in fear. They're trying to self-protect instead of relying on God. They make a bunch of mistakes and they go back to Bethel. Back in Bethel, what do they do again? They call on the name of the Lord and build an altar. Back in Bethel, they're there for a while, a few years. What happens? Abram's household has a conflict with Lot's household, his nephew, they get in, they're quarreling and they can't get along. So Abram says, hey, let's not fight. Let's part ways. And he says to Lot, look at all this land. You get pick what one you want. 
Lot picks the best of the land. And then also, what, what animals, what livestock do you want? Lot picks the best of the livestock. And Abram, it doesn't say this, but this is what I'm thinking. Abram's like, God's got this. This is my imagination. God's got this. God's promised me that he's going to bless me and I'm going to bless others. So I'm going to bless Lot with the best land and the best livestock, and I'm going to keep going on my journey. So he's generous and he gives to his nephew. Then he journeys on, he packs up his tents and moves to this place called Hebron. And what does he do? He stops. He gives what he has and he builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. And everyone, every time he calls on the name of the Lord, everyone in Hebron, everyone in Shechem, everyone in Bethel say, there's that crazy man, Abram, who keeps calling on this God, Jehovah. Who's that God, Jehovah? Who is that God? And they say, we're, we're, we're watching this. Who is this Jehovah. Then Lot gets into more trouble. Lot seems to like trouble. He seems attracted to trouble. And he gets in a big battle with a bunch of local tribes and everyone goes to war and Abram finds out. And what does Abram do? Abram goes and rescues Lot. Lot has been a complete jerk. <laughs> but Abram keeps blessing him, giving him the best, protecting him, caring for him. Abram leaves this battle where he protects Lot, and on his way, he meets this priest, this king from Salem named Melchizedek. And who's this guy? I don't know. He's a very mysterious character. I'd love to tell you more about him and talk more about that sometime over lunch or coffee. But he worships Jehovah, and he's a priest for Jehovah. And what does Abram do? He brings him one-tenth of all his possessions. He gives him his very best. So we see, this is the first time we get this idea of the tenth being given for kingdom purposes, for Jehovah's worship. He gives this tenth to him. And he makes, he builds an altar, makes an offering, and calls on the name of the Lord. Abram and Sarah Sarai continue journeying, and all along they have moments when they walk in faith and moments when they lapse back into fear and trying to do things in their own strength. They, they have another instance where they lie to someone else in self-preservation. Another time, they still haven't had kids. They're like in their 90s. <laughs> they still haven't had kids. And so Abraham sleeps with a servant to have a kid. And God's like, no. I said Abraham and Sarah, not Abraham and Hagar. But he's like, what are we going to do, God? we got to get this promise going. No. Despite these ups and downs, this is what makes following Jehovah different than the gods of Ur, where you make sacrifices and appease them. They are making these mistakes. They're honoring and responding to God. And God just keeps repeating. Jehovah keeps saying, Listen, this is my promise for you. I want to bless you. I want to prosper you. I want to make your name great, your offspring. You're going to have children more than the stars in the nighttime sky and more than the sand on the seashore. Come on, let's go. 
They're like, no way. And God says, I promise you, they have another instance, another encounter with God. You're going to have a son. And they're like, how can this be? And when, while they're questioning God, God asks them to lay something else on the table. God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son, but I want you to be circumcised. What, Lord? You're telling me I'm going to have a child, but you're asking me to circumcise, to cut the very place that can produce a child? You're asking me to cut the very place of my strength and my productivity and my abundance and my, the ability to have this promise come to pass? And God says, yes, I want you to give even your body as a living sacrifice. Wow. And Abraham says, yes, I'll do it. And everyone, every male in the whole clan and tribe is circumcised. And it's at this point that they get new names. Abram and Sarai, their names are changed. They actually take on the name of Jehovah. So when I got married, I wasn't just Sarah McGinnis anymore. I was Sarah McGinnis Rudd, right? I took on Aaron's name. Well, in this instance, Jehovah has a sound in it, an H-E-H. Vivian Hibbert loves to tell this story. I don't do it as good as her. But there's this, this H sound in Jehovah. And that H sound, it means grace, and it means look, behold. So now it's not just Abram, it's Abraham. And it's not just Sarah with no H, it's Sarah with an H at the end. And so every time, everywhere they go, they start introducing themselves as Sarah and Abraham. I can't say it. And I'm over-exaggerating it, right? To get your attention. But they're going along and people are saying, look, that's the Jehovah guy. Look, that's the Jehovah woman. That, those are the ones that are following Jehovah. Look, behold, the grace of God is on their life. The next year, two other things happen. Oh, they lie again <laughs> with a neighboring king. And then another thing happens with Lot. Lot lives in the city called Sodom. And God looks to Abraham and says, Abraham, things are not going well in Sodom. Sodom needs to change. And he gives Abraham an opportunity to intercede for Sodom. That's what it means to be a blessing, Abraham, wherever you go. You're going to intercede for places like Sodom. I want you to go and intercede. Or what are you going to do, Abraham? Are we going to talk about this? And Abraham intercedes. A year later, after Abraham is circumcised, their only son, Isaac, is born. Yay, this baby is here. We have a few babies with us today. They're such a blessing. This baby is born. A few years later, when this baby Isaac grows up, all the promises for Abraham and Sarah, they're thinking all the promises rest on this kid. 
This is supposed to be the kid that's supposed to inherit this land and make God's name great in the nations and tell everyone about Jehovah and build altars for Jehovah. And God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. What? What is this? What is this, God? And when we read this story today, and when we read these chapters today, they're hard to absorb and hard to understand. We're like, what is going on? But at the time, the idea might not have seemed that foreign to Abraham. Because that's what pagan cultures, that's what the cultures he came from did. They would sacrifice humans. It's terrible. And you know what? As repulsive and crazy as it is to us today, I was talking with someone this week who comes from a culture where they still sacrifice humans. It's so unbelievable, but this is a vile, violent part of human history where we violate and are terrible with one another. And in some effort to gain power and control. So this is part of life. I don't know. I don't know. That passage is so hard to understand. This story is hard to understand. But Abraham's like, man, I left Ur. I've been following on this journey. I've been going all this way. I'm, I'm going to do what God says. God's asked me to do this. I'm going to do this. And he binds Isaac. And he takes Isaac up this mountain. And they go to sacrifice. And just as he's about to slay his own son of the sacrifice, Jehovah provides a ram, an animal in the thicket, and says, don't do it. Use an animal instead. I like to think this story is about Jehovah differentiating himself from the pagan cultures of the time. No more of this human sacrifice. Absolutely not. I'm not like that. I'm providing the sacrifice. It's not human effort and human sacrifice. I have this for you. But it's a foreshadowing. All of the theologians, well, I don't know if all, but many theologians agree that it's also a picture of the Father, Father God offering his one and only son, Jesus, on the cross, providing that sacrifice. And that's the last time. There should never be any kind of human sacrifice, human shedding of blood, or animal sacrifice ever again. Jesus did it at the cross. We also know this story is about a test of Abraham's trust in God. Not only had he sacrificed his past in Ur, not only was he continually offering up his present before God, but he was saying, God, I give you my future. I lay my future on the altar. That's Abraham's life in two pages. <laughs> you should read about it. He lived a life of faith and worship. I want to summarize again what he did with these bullet points. He left his country, people, family, and origins to journey with Jehovah. 
He built altars calling on the name of the Lord and making Jehovah known wherever he went. He lived a life of generosity, offering the best of what he had to those around him and giving a tenth of his, his best in worship to Jehovah with Melchizedek. He was circumcised. He entrusted his own body and strength. He says, I'm not going to prosper by my own strength. I'm going to trust in Jehovah. He gave his name, his very identity to be marked by Jehovah. He interceded. He went to battle. He, inter- he went to battle for Lot. He prayed for the people of Sodom. And he bound Isaac. He gave his future to God. This is worship. That's a lifestyle of worship. That's way bigger than singing songs on Sunday, isn't it? This is what God invites you to. Welcome to worship. (laughs) What an adventure. It's worth it. It's good news. It's life in Christ. There's an inheritance. There's eternal life. There's blessing. What would leaving Ur look like for you? What does it mean for you to leave your country, your people, and your family identity for a life of citizenship in heaven first? What does that mean? I'm not suggesting anyone abandon their families. (laughs) But I am suggesting that there's something greater than even our own families and interests and things that we love. It's a kingdom of heaven. What does it mean for you to set up an altar wherever you go? Every new place you go and set your foot, what does it mean to call on the name of Jehovah? What does it mean for you to live a life of generosity, abundant with your neighbors, abundant with the kingdom, giving your best, What does it mean for you to give your very bodies to God, to offer your body as a pleasing sacrifice to God? What does that mean? What does that look like? Intercession. What does it mean that everywhere you go, you care deeply about your neighbors? Are you willing to go to battle metaphorically? I'm thinking about a friend I was talking to this week who does prison ministry. Um, Families are finally allowed to see each other in the prison, but he's the only ministry allowed in there. And he's going and he's touching people. He's interceding for the prisoners. Remember that time, the times we went down all the way to Colorado city you know, that fundamentalist um, polygamous community that was really abusive. And, and we went down there and we prayed. We spent, we spent time there. We've given to Colorado City as a community. And look what has happened there. It's been transformed. It's a whole new city. We cared about the city, Colorado City. And God is moving in that place now. We interceded. I've been meeting with um, some pastors from Good Shepherd, um, Peter Asiyama with Kingdom Life or Kingdom Glory, Mountain Springs Community Church, a church called Kingdom Huddle. 
if the whole church is formatted around the structure of football, how's that for a church form? Very unconventional. <laughs> Kingdom huddle. Anyways, we've been getting together as pastors and saying, how can we combat racism? How can, what can we do? And we all know that problem is poof, way big, but what can we do? What can we do? And, and so one of the people, we're going to go on a trek to Topaz, which is um, in Delta, where there was a Japanese and American internment camp during World War II. And we're going to go down there and we're just going to lament and remember and pray and just ask God to move on our hearts. Like, it's, it's just a small step. It's not going to solve the problem, but it's going to help us be aware of our neighbors. So if you want to come with me, let me know. It's a full day affair because it's like two hours away. <laughs> so come with me. This is an act of worship to intercede on behalf of people who feel um, uh, racism. The binding of Isaac, offering our futures, and the promises that we've received to God, that is an act of worship, naming. I wanna close, I want Stanley to come tell a story about a name change that he went through. And we're gonna conclude with this story. I've gone a little bit longer than I do normally. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But I, I felt like this story was an important picture of what it means um, of an act of worship that is very unusual, but it hap it's a good one. In uh, uh, 97, I was at a conference in Park City that I was not enjoying in any way, shape, or form. Um, I disagreed with what the guy was saying, or, or didn't like what he was saying. I now agree with him, but I didn't like it then. And so I was lamenting to God in the back row, why am I even here? What, what, what am I going to get out of this? And one of those times when I feel God's small, still voice spoke to me very clearly, he said, I want you to use your real name. And I'm like, what, am I adopted? I I, only, I thought I knew my real name, and I thought I was using it. And I'm like, my real name isn't Stan? And he's like, no, your real name is Stan Lee. And so I'm like, okay, okay. Now, I hated the name Stan Lee. have always hated the name Stan Lee since I was a little kid, because when I was growing up, Stan Lee Bemis, those of you that are as old as me, Mild as a daffodil, Telly took his power pill, then he became Captain Terrific. And most of the dweeby guys on TV were named Stanley. <laughs> and kids would tease me with Stanley. And my mother would say my full name when she was mad at me. So I didn't like the name. And so I never used it. And so I started using it and started figuring out, okay, why would he want me to do this? Well, Stanley means, literally means Stony Meadows. And it means stone or strong and lee, like the lee side of an island or a meadow, which is in the lee of a mountain. Very pleasant place. So my name is supposed to mean strong but pleasant. Well, th there is no way before 1997 that everybody had known me as strong. There, no one would have disputed that. In fact, my entire identity was tied up into that. It was the only identity I had after I got saved. I was a mean, violent person, and that's all I understood. In fact, I remember lamenting 
if I can't beat people up, who am I? <laughs> Literally, I'm not kidding. It was terrible. And I did not know how to be pleasant. <clears throat> the amazing thing about the name change was, what's the number one word you hear more than any other word ever in your life? Your name, absolutely. And they, they are speaking it over me all the time, telling me you are strong, but pleasant, which is, I believe is true now. And I tried to be nice before, but I've failed at it. After my name change, I just started telling everybody, please call me Stanley, call me Stanley. I introduced myself as Stanley and all that kind of stuff. And it has been working. In fact, it worked so well that in 2001, I think it was maybe 2002, we had a visiting minister come back and teach here who knew me since I was born again. And in the process of teaching made reference to what I was like before, how she knew me truthfully. And a friend of mine who didn't know me then, but knows me now, was so angry. He came and said, do you know their text number or anything? Because I am going to write them and tell them that they are wrong. This is not who you are. They, who do they think they are coming in and saying this about, about you? I mean, he was angry. And I said, whoa, back off. She hasn't known me since my name changed. And she's right. The way she described me was the way I was. You've only known me the other way. So it was a real testimony of what God does when we allow him to change us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So we covered a lot of different aspects of worship today, right? We covered leaving our past, making God's name known right now in our present, giving him the promises of our future. He covered generosity, intercession. Um, oh man, I already, name changes, giving our bodies, thank you. <laughs> I closed my notes, <laughs> giving our very bodies. And so I'd like us to just stand right now and pray. Um, God highlighted something to you that you mean, maybe need to add to your repertoire of worship. <laughs> your acts of worship are so much greater. Lord, we just come today and offer you our lives. We are so blessed to be called your children. We're so blessed to be given keys to an adventure in Christ. We're so blessed that we get to follow Jehovah. We're so thankful for the good news that we can be rooted and planted in love, a love that will transform us and make us like trees planted by the water, strong and resilient and bearing fruit. And so in response to that, Lord, we say we want to be people of worship. We want to be people who live lifestyles of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.